0: Four point six billion.
1: The Earth forms.
0: Cambrian. Five hundred and forty-two million. Complex life explodes. Permian-Triassic. Two hundred and fifty-one million. Ninety percent of species die. Cretaceous-Tertiary. Sixty-five million.
1: Meteor kills the dinosaurs. Fifty-five
0: million. Primates appear. Two point three million. Pleistocene. Two hundred thousand. Humans. Twenty thousand.
1: Agricultural
0: 250.
1: revolution. Industrial revolution.
0: Sixty. With Great animals. acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, I'm Michael Osborne, and today I am at Barton Springs in downtown Austin. I just got out of the pool. So if you don't know, Barton Springs is a natural spring that the city built a swimming pool around. When I say natural, like the whole swimming pool is untreated. It's about a fifth of a mile long and the water comes out at 68 degrees year-round, clear as glass. If you come here in the middle of the winter, when it's below freezing, it's a hot spring because it's 68 degrees. And if you come here in the middle of the summer when it's 105, it's frigid and feels incredible. I've heard some people say, Barton Springs is reason enough to live in Austin. And I agree with that. I love this place. It is for me and for a lot of people, a kind of spiritual place. It's where I come to feel connected to nature. There's this large, grassy hill that looks like something out of a -a pointillist painting. And you come in here, and man, you're just, your soul settles down. Something deep inside clicks into place. And you know, when it comes to environmentalism today, you know, a lot of the conversation, especially in the news, gets sort of framed around very practical concerns— We're losing species and we're destroying the rainforest and we are threatening the life support systems of the planet. We won't be able to have food and water for the 8 billion people and growing and so forth. And all those concerns are very important and very practical. But there is another part of the environmental movement that is about this other quality that's maybe a little bit spiritual, maybe even quasi-religious. And that brings us to today's guest.
1: I'm Braun Taylor, an environmental studies professor at the University of Florida. I focus especially on the ethical and spiritual dimensions of environmental movements around the world.
0: A few years ago, Braun wrote a book called Dark Green Religion. Now, when I first heard that term, dark green religion, my mind immediately went to a sort of eco-radical flavor of environmentalism. You know, people who are devout about their beliefs that nature and planet Earth are sacred, and even so far as to engage in criminal acts, property damage, acts of sabotage in the name of the Earth.
1: The FBI is looking for those who torch these $30,000 SUVs Friday. It's the second arson in less than a year at this Eugene car dealership. Among the potential suspects, the Earth Liberation Front.
0: So is it therefore fair
1: or unfair to group the ELF with terrorists? Is that really an appropriate label? Well, it's a, it's a big question. I mean, people who support the ELF say, these guys are not terrorists. This is the Boston Tea Party. It's symbolic property destruction. No one's ever been hurt in an ELF action. Indeed. On the other hand, we spent a lot of time with the prosecutor and the detective on the case and, and arson victims. And they tell us that after their businesses were attacked, they didn't know who these people were. And, and when you use fear and intimidation to get somebody to do something, that's the essence of terrorism.
0: Now, dark green religion is more than just eco-radicalism. So I want to start this off by just having Braun define what dark green religion is.
1: Basically, the felt sense that nature is sacred or sublime in some way. The idea that all living things have intrinsic value and deserve respect and reverence. The idea that all life forms share a common ancestor and therefore are kin. The idea that all life is interconnected and mutually dependent, which is associated with feelings of belonging and connection to nature and generally includes humility about the human place in the world. And then finally, the idea that death is not something to be feared, but accepted, if not embraced as the necessary wellspring for new life, and even of the evolutionary process itself. Experiences of awe and wonder, at the terror beauty and wonders of the universe, and finally a love of and for nature.
0: So that's dark green religion, and we're going to revisit some of those ideas as this conversation goes on. It's a little bit heady, though. It's a little bit hard to wrap your head around. One way to understand what these themes really mean is to see them in action. And for that reason, the example of eco-radicalism is actually really helpful. So I asked Braun to tell me the story of the Earth Liberation Front and a guy named Bill Rogers.
1: Bill Rogers was involved in orchestrating a number of acts of what people call environmental sabotage, what some people call eco-terrorism. These actions involved arson attacks on genetic modification research institutes, on places where wild horses are held before they are slaughtered. And then he was eventually arrested uh, in 2005.
0: I mean, you know, we don't have to spend too much time on it. What do you know about how he got arrested and then sort of what happened
1: after? Long story short, there were some 20 activists that were involved in very radical actions, uh, folks who identified with the Earth Liberation Front and... One of them happened to have a heroin uh, addiction and got arrested by authorities and uh, ultimately began to to talk. That led to quite a number of activists being arrested and about two thirds of them ended up cooperating with the authorities and that led to uh, Bill Rogers' arrest.
0: And then so he's in jail, what happens then?
1: He's suicided in jail. Uh, I happen to have here what he wrote on that occasion. Uh, would you like to hear that? Please, yeah, I was gonna ask for that. I'm glad he brought it. Well, he left these words for his comrades after being betrayed by a few of them. Certain human cultures have been waging war against the earth for millennia. I chose to fight on the side of bears, mountain lions, skunks, bats, saguaros, cliff rows, and all things wild. I'm just the most recent casualty in that war. But tonight, I've made a jailbreak. I'm returning home to the earth, to the place of my origins. And then he signed it, Bill, and dated it 21 December, winter solstice. And this was in 2005.
0: It it sort of sounds like he's telling himself he's having a good death. Like he's sort of saying, I'm giving myself over to this great cause, and I'm speaking for the earth. I mean, it's... uh, it, it it's it's powerful, and I, I you know I, I'm realizing I didn't I didn't really sit with that idea. I guess when you heard about his death, his suicide, and read this suicide note, what was your reaction? I mean, did, did you have a similar reaction to that?
1: He was a very complicated character, and I knew him as a very thoughtful, gentle person, and I was shocked but not surprised that he had done that yeah. because. For someone who had spent his life advocating for and trying to protect wild creatures, the idea of being incarcerated for life or even facing a death penalty after many years in prison was just inconceivable. So I found the note evocative and moving. When I read it in a a lecture, it's obvious that, that many in the audience feel the same way because they're just kind of floored by it and a kind of quiet descends over over the group. You knew him, right? I did. I first met him, I was doing uh, field work within the, the radical environmental movement throughout the 90s, and I met him on a number of occasions. The first time I met him, he handed me a compendium that he had put together of writings and poetry and art that reflected what we call a deep ecological spiritual perception, a sense that all life has value apart from its usefulness to human beings. And then I met him again a number of years later in Idaho where activists were protesting a road that was being punched in for logging in the Cove and Mallard wilderness area. This area was considered uh, an essential corridor between two large wilderness areas. In fact, the largest last two wilderness areas in North America. On that occasion, staying up late one night, he went to the back of his pickup truck. He had been there in that campaign for a long time doing all sorts of very radical things. And he brought me a copy of what he called a black cat sabotage manual. And uh, I had the distinct impression there that he might be recruiting me as a (laughs) compadre in that sabotage campaign.
0: Now, obviously, Braun decided not to sign on with Bill Rogers and instead continued on as a scholar, religious studies professor. But after Bill Rogers died, Braun started looking more at trying to get understand, like, what exactly did this guy believe? What were his values? What was his worldview? He had one pamphlet that he would circulate amongst his followers, and there was another booklet called Mountains and Rivers Compel Me. And when Braun started unpacking these materials, he discovered there's a lot of ideas that really help us understand what this idea of dark green religion is all about.
1: Well, let's start with the deep ecology focused one. Deep ecology is a movement that was, well, it's a term that was coined by the Norwegian philosopher Arne Nass in the early 1970s. And he used the term to express this idea that all life has value apart from its usefulness to human beings. Hmm. Deep ecology is a form of what we can call anti-anthropocentrism. In other words, a philosophy that that contests the idea that only human beings have value. And in this compendium, as an avid reader, in fact, he co-owned a radical bookshop, a radical green bookshop. He had reproduced a wide variety of poetry art, and essays from this kind of perspective. It's really a very good exemplar of this kind of deep ecological spirituality. Um, Earthverse is a movement that was founded in 1980 by fed up environmentalists who thought that the time had come for direct action resistance from civil disobedience to even sabotage to thwart environmentally destructive practices. What Bill Rogers did with the sabotage manual is he excerpted many of the articles from that journal and similar journals that described how to do sabotage in the effort to protect biological diversity.
0: But then he adds to it, right? He starts pulling bits and pieces from other places in part of this. I'm really thinking of the mountains and rivers compel me because mm-hmm. there's bits in there from sort of Tibetan Buddhism, and he's got, you know, Native American tradition essays in there. And it's a real, you use the word, I think, uh, bricolage. I always say this wrong. Right, right. It? Yeah, I mean, it's real, like, it's sort of bits and pieces that he's he's pulling together. And that, that feels important to who he is and what he's all about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we look at contemporary nature spiritualities, they are often just what you said. And I love this word bricolage from the French bricolure, which is basically the idea of taking different pieces of rock or brick and assembling them into a wall, for example, a bricolure. And contemporary spirituality is much like that. A lot of traditional religions, of course are involved in kind of reinforcing the traditional teachings of that particular religion, and even in various ways, distancing themselves from other traditions. Whereas in the world's kind of countercultures, there's widespread borrowing from diverse traditions, kind of cherry picking the parts that they like and leaving behind the parts that they don't. So if we look at the development of environmental studies, even over the last uh, 50 plus years, there's been a general perception, and uh, it's actually not an accurate one, that religions originating in Asia tend to promote more environmentally friendly attitudes and behaviors than Western ones. Mm-hmm. And Rogers was definitely influenced from that perspective. So does he split from, just so I make
0: sure I get the story right, he splits from Earth First and starts Earth Liberation Front. That's These are two different organizations, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There were frustrations within Earth First at what some that had been drawn to that movement considered to be inappropriate barriers to action. The early Earth Firsters were saying we're okay with sabotage, but they didn't think that anything should be done that could possibly risk human lives. So Mm. there were controversies about specific practices that some people were advocating. And that was at least part of a split or a splintering of the movement that really began fairly early on. But the Earth Liberation Front, they call themselves the Elves. Yeah. They really have this kind of feeling of mischievousness. But even though uh, the ELF deployed arson, they were also very careful to avoid hurting people. So for example, when Rogers torched the lodge at Vale, there was a security guard in one of the buildings on the mountain. And it carefully surveilled it before they torched it and they didn't torch the building that the security guard was in. Now, of course, that doesn't mean there were no risks at all to human beings and they were willing to risk harm to human beings, but they were careful to uh, to avoid doing that. As you say in your book,
0: Dark Green Religion, the kind of radical environmentalists phenomenon, by examining it, you get a, a pretty clear, definition of some things at the extremes. And when I first heard, and when I talked to my friends about this idea of dark green religion, their mind kind of goes to this like sort of deep ecology, you know, fundamentalist sort of environmentalist uh, idea in a sense. But actually this concept is a lot broader than that and applies to a lot more people. As I was reading your book, I was really wrestling and saying, you know, I see a lot of myself in this. There's no question about it. So I want to get to what you call the long shadow of dark green religion. And I want to use the movie Avatar and perhaps Disney movies as well as an example of how we might begin to understand some of the ideas that define what you call dark green religion. At this point, let's, let's define this thing. What is dark green religion?
1: You know, dark green religion is uh, a term that I made up. On the one hand, it reflects this idea that nature is sacred, that it has intrinsic value, that Mm -hmm. life has value apart from its usefulness to us as one single species. And as I've constructed the term, it involves perceptions and beliefs that everything is interconnected and mutually dependent. These sorts of spiritualities typically involve deep feelings of belonging to nature, right? Yeah. Now, it's, it's also often rooted in an evolutionary understanding that all life shares a common ancestor. And dark green religion generally leads to perceptions that people are biologically related to, uh, that they are kin to all living things. And these kinds of kinship perceptions lead quite naturally to empathy toward other living beings who, like us, have evolved in the way that Darwin called the struggle for existence. So I got interested in, for example, radical environmentalism because, to be honest, I shared some of these basic perceptions. And when I looked at the environmental movement, it seemed to me that it was pretty mamby-pamby. It wasn't uh, being as aggressive as it needed to be to address the accelerating environmental apocalypse that was unfolding to anyone who was carefully studying the literature, and I went also to the woods to study these folks because I'd been studying religion and politics and social movements from the civil rights movements to Latin American revolutionary movements. And I was interested in the possibility that, that these nature-related spiritualities that I was perceiving in my first looks at these movements might presage something really significant and new unfolding in, in, in social and environmental politics.
0: You know, I, I relate to that, right? I'm, I'm alarmed by the environmental crisis, uh, climate change is upon us, and it's real and it's growing, and it's only one of many forms of environmental destruction that's global now, and I'm I'm pissed off about it. I kind of want to find the right group, the right movement who's taken action, but I also, you know, I don't want to sign off on violence. Certainly, I don't want to hurt
1: people. Yeah, I mean, the well, overarching question of my career is, what will it take to mobilize the human animal to respond adequately to the predicaments that we've made for ourselves here? It's a damn good question. <laughs> but let's go back to Avatar, for example, then. Yeah. When I saw Avatar, it came out as it happened the same month that my book was being printed. And I immediately thought, oh, this is a perfect example of what I'm what I just wrote about in Dark Green Religion, because of course in dark green religion I was looking at all kinds of social phenomena that reflect this kind of dark green spirituality not just radical environmentalists but environmental philosophers scientists activists historians painters photographers poets musicians <laughs> theatrical and documentary filmmakers nature writers literary critics museum and aquarium curators people are expressing and promoting these kinds of dark green spiritualities in a host of ways but when i saw avatar i thought oh my God, this is possibly the most important dark green propaganda that's ever been made. (laughs) And this is, just Uh, to
0: clarify, James Cameron's Avatar, which is, to this day, the most successful movie of all time in terms of uh, box office.
1: Right, Uh, and had had not the Chinese felt threatened by it and cut off the exhibition of it pretty early because they suddenly recognized how subversive it, it was to much of what they were doing, it would probably be... The biggest blockbuster of all time. Yeah, but it came out in in December of 2009, and by the way, several s- sequels are forthcoming. I believe starting at the end of 2022, and then every two years or so after that. Well, and and, and what's the story about? Many uh, listeners have not yet seen it. Yeah, um, but they certainly should, at least before they see the the first of the sequels. Uh, it, it's a science fiction story that metaphorically depicts the invasion of a distant moon in a faraway place, and the inhabitants of that moon are analogous to indigenous people whose lifeways, livelihoods, and spiritualities have been overrun by imperial societies for uh, millennia. And so it's, on the one hand, it's an anti-colonial film, But it also recognizes that wherever large-scale agricultural and industrial societies go, indigenous societies and the complex ecosystems that they are entwined in get destroyed. And so it's a protest against that kind of destruction. And it also very sympathetically displays the kind of spiritualities that are prevalent in what I've identified as dark green spiritualities.
0: Say more about that. How so? What's in the movie that displays,
1: you know, these ideas? Two things, basically. One is an animistic spirituality. What is animism? Yeah. Well, animism can take different forms. A kind of traditional form of animism is a perception that there are Invisible spirits inhabiting natural entities, and sometimes included with that is that we need to be in proper reciprocal relationships with these entities. And if we're not, we could be in trouble.
0: Yeah. So like tree spirits or, you know, animal spirits or even like
1: rock spirits. I mean, it could be anything, right? Yeah, that's right. And and it's traditional in religion that uh, of any sort that you need to be in proper alignment with spiritual beings or forces, right? Yeah. So, but there's also there's naturalistic forms of animism. I argue, which are based on our own personal experience with non-human organisms, where we recognize that there is intelligence, agency, emotions, and that we can be in relationship with these non-human organisms, right? And you don't need some kind of invisible spirit to have that kind of animism. Indeed, the sciences are teaching us now that there's tremendous continuity between our own species and other species. We all evolved through the same processes, right? And there's a a discipline called ethology, which is the study of animal consciousness and behavior that shows us that that other organisms are a lot more like us than we used to think. So that's one form of spirituality that's very prevalent in the uh, Avatar film. The other dimension of spirituality is very prevalent is what, it's an ancient perception that that's called organicism, mm. which is the basically the idea that everything is connected and mutually dependent, mm. all things in life. Today, that's increasingly discussed as a Gaian kind of worldview, based on the ancient Greek goddess of the earth, Gaia, right? And so in the Avatar film, the environmental systems of this moon, Pandora, are viewed as deeply interconnected and in a kind of neural web. Mm
0: -hmm. And this is
1: very similar to the scientific perspective that was advanced by James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis in the 1970s that has become known as the Gaia hypothesis. I mean, I,
0: I just want to pause again and say how attractive those ideas are to me. I've never had a spiritual conversation with a tree or with an animal. But I, at times it felt like my heart is connecting with something deeper than me out in nature. And certainly the idea of the guy hypothesis of interconnectivity, you know, it feels rooted in science feels like it connects with my affinity for science and for ecology and for how nature works the kind of rules of nature so there's just like in describing those principles i just want to like pause again and say how much i like that idea you know and and when you're watching a movie you know you don't know why you like it you know you like the story you might like the characters you might like the display of of the art but i mean i but there's I mean, your point, I think, is that there's values that are woven into this film and many other films that are sort of hidden in plain sight that we don't necessarily, you know, stop and sort of take stock of.
1: Quite right. And interestingly, Cameron himself, who uh, is an avowed atheist, nevertheless has indicated his own affinity with the basic spiritual sentiments of the film— And that's where there's this kind of blurry line. Where does religion end and that which is not religion begin, right? Yeah. And part of what I wrestle with in the dark green religion book is that there's this broad umbrella of what I call dark green spirituality. And some of it is traditionally religious in that there are invisible divine spirits, beings, or forces in some way. And some of it is entirely naturalistic and really often rooted Directly in the sciences. So Cameron's more in the latter side, but like a lot of people who are very scientific, have come to respect those who are more traditionally spiritual because they see affinities between a more spiritually infused worldview of interconnection and belonging, and their more naturalistic forms.
0: Well, it seems like some of it's semantic too. I know a lot of people call themselves atheists, like Cameron, uh, but they'll say, but I'm open to spirituality. And you're sort of like, "Eh, what's the difference there, right? On on some level. Because I feel like when people say, I'm not religious, what they're really saying is I'm not part of any formal religion, part of any sort of established mainstream religion or something like that. I guess one other thing I want to point out, I really really do hope at this point people listening see themselves in this. And I think one of the things that's complicated is it's not like there's a sign-up sheet. It's not like there's a place where you go and say, I am a member of dark green religion. I think people are without kind of realizing it. And that even kind of applies to mainstream religions. I know people who may or may not self-identify as Christians, but are they going to church on Sunday? Are they praying? Do they read the Bible? Eh, Maybe, maybe not. Like even with established religions, the the boundaries can be blurry. Your point is that this is much bigger and broader, this phenomenon of, of dark green religion, whether people recognize that they're part of it or in it or participating in some form of it or not.
1: No, that's quite right. And and part of what I wanted to do in the book is to sort of point out the commonalities that are emerging in social phenomena around the world. So these social trends that are emerging that I call dark green religions are evolutionary cultural trends. And I argue that they have tremendous cultural traction. You mentioned those who consider themselves spiritual, but not religious, or who don't self-identify with a a long-standing religious tradition. Well, the, that proportion of humankind is r- dramatically increasing. Many of those folks express and promote uh, dark green spiritual sentiments and and values. So, we've talked, uh, uh, you know,
0: evolution and an evolutionary perspective, and this idea of kinship ethics has come up a few times in the conversation. And I, I you know, I was really trying to think, like, when did this thing start? Whatever dark green religion is, as you're defining it, when, what is a good origin point for it?
1: First, I'll say that the kind of sentiments and perceptions that I write about in the book, they're long-standing. We're human beings. We all have the same emotional and cognitive infrastructure. But something dramatically new occurred with Charles Darwin and, of course, with Alfred Wallace. And for those who don't know, Wallace is also kind of co-credited with the theory of evolution, but it was really Darwin who put it into words and in a more sophisticated way that really uh, leads everybody to, to most closely identify the theory of evolution with Charles Darwin. Right. So in my judgment, everything began to change with Charles Darwin with regard to our understandings of our place in the biosphere and how biocomplexity emerged here. And actually, I need to correct myself a little bit. I shouldn't say everything began to change because we really need to acknowledge that Darwin stood on the shoulders of other thinkers who hinted at, and more than hinted at, an evolutionary and ecological worldview, including Alexander von Humboldt and yeah. his grandfather and so forth. So th- that's that's for the history nerds to, to get into later, perhaps. And I work through this in the book. But Once people begin to recognize that they got here in precisely the same way as every other living being, that kind of takes a certain kind of arrogance off the table. That's kind of the, the wellspring of this idea of kinship. We all share a common ancestor. We got here in exactly the same way. We ought to have empathy for others who are long involved in this very struggle of existence.
0: I want to sit with that some more. The theory of evolution is proposed in the late 19th century, and it it was at the time threatening and challenging and ground shaking. I mean, it was momentous. It's not like it went unrecognized. However, it does feel like the. I don't know if you want to say religious or spiritual, but let's just say worldview shaking foundations of it that we're related to monkeys, uh, you know, and that we we have common ancestors that it, it does feel like the saturation of that message is so big and so important that it's sort of like taken time for us to appreciate, like just what a big idea it is. I mean, in, in one way, that's not true. It guides a lot of science and our understanding of how nature works. And it's, it's one of the most important scientific theories of all time. But in another way, the sort of moral implications of it, like that doesn't necessarily register immediately. I feel like that that itself has had to evolve. And and, and I guess I just want to tie that back in with this conversation we're having about dark green religion. Um, you know, how much does evolution really push our, our religious understanding of the world, any religious understanding of the
1: world? Yeah. And I, I'd start in response just by noting what you alluded to early on in in that this understanding is a fundamental challenge to the cosmovisions or the worldviews of most of the world's predominant religions. And, and by that, I mean the so-called Axial Age religions that developed thousands of years ago, right? And that now very large proportions of the human community still embrace. You know, I, I sometimes ask people, and maybe I'll ask you, yeah. if you were around and you had happened across Uh, a field and Jesus is out there teaching people stuff. Or on the Indian subcontinent, you were able to listen to the person we now call the Buddha. What would you have thought of them at that time, do you think? I mean, it's so hard to say, right? Because I I
0: do need the kind of passage of time. This is part of what makes it kind of an Anthropocene question for me, is that the Anthropocene, to me, really reckons with timescales, the idea of it, you know, right. You know, I I could see myself encountering Buddha or Jesus and being like, man, that guy, Holy cow, mind blowing. But I've had the same experience with Ted talks. You know, I've had the same experience with podcasts, you know, I've, I've encountered big ideas before and been like, Holy shit. But whether or not it's, it, it then disseminates across a lot of people and And takes on a momentum of itself, and then has a long shelf life. You know, man, I'm not in the prediction game. I, I I don't, I don't know. You know, how would you know? How can anybody know?
1: know? Well, you know, most religions fail. There's scores of religions being invented today, and most will die out. Mm. So, I mean. I'd like to think that listening to Jesus and his teachings on humility and love and so forth and so on, the way in which he contrasted what he was talking about with the the Ten Commandments and the eye for an eye stuff. I'd like to think that if I had been listening, I would have been drawn to that almost uh, (laughs) hippie-like love ethic. Yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, But I don't think... I'd be thinking, gosh, you know, in uh, 500 years, 1,000 years, in 2,000 years, a very large proportion of the human community is going to be a devotee of this cat, right? Right. Just like you're not thinking if you hear a co- cool TED talk that there's going to be, you know, a cult surrounding this or that speaker, right? Exactly, yeah. So, you know, I, I really appreciate when you talk about the Anthropocene, we, we think about eras. And one of the problems when we think about things is we're, we live such a short period of time We just only think in terms of really tiny time spans, right? But it took hundreds of years, even for these rapidly growing movements that we now call the axial age religions or the world's predominant religions, it took them time to build. Now, of course, that was in part because the communicative structures were not anywhere near as developed as they are today. Okay. Yeah, things things move fast today with information age. Well, right. So then I think, okay, 160 years since On the Origin of Species was published. As you said, Darwin knew this was going to be controversial. In fact, he was reluctant to put it out there because his wife was a devout Christian and it was really upsetting to her. And he knew that he was going to catch, you know, a lot of flack. For putting this out there. In fact, he didn't even talk about the evolution of human beings in the first book. He waited until the descent of man to actually make the connection between us and the, and the great apes. But part of what I'm asking people to consider in the Dark Green Religion book is, it's only been 160 years since Darwin wrote this book. It didn't really begin to significantly swell until we got a lot more data to back it up, including DNA data. But my argument is that the cultural traction that an ecological and evolutionary worldview has and the way in which it changes people's understandings of their place in the biosphere and in the universe is unfolding with tremendous rapidity. Mm -hmm. And it involves these kinds of kinship understandings. I've written about, you know, the logical implications of this realization of kinship. And just like you have close relatives, right? And you have ethical obligations to your closest relatives. But that doesn't mean that you don't have obligations to to distant human relatives, Right. right? Who may live in a different continent. Now, how do you do that? Well, you vote for people that are trying to do good in the world generally, or you donate to those causes. The same thing happens when people start to develop these kinship spiritualities that recognize kinship beyond our species. They donate to environmental causes. They vote for politicians. They're trying to protect the earth's biological diversity. So my point is that these dark green spiritualities are spreading rapidly around the world. They have dramatic cultural traction. They have a wide variety of individual and institutional purveyors, including in the universities, right? Mm -hmm. In scientific bodies and so forth. Mm -hmm. And that If we think another 100 years forward or 500 years forward, what do we think the prevailing worldviews are going to be? Well, in my view, these dark green spiritualities are going to be a much larger proportion of the human community than they are today. So
0: I really think the point here is that if you take evolution and then you take the substantiating evidence and substantiating research of the theory of evolution to heart, you know, the ethical moral implication is we are connected to life on earth and things that are closer to us, we may have an ethical or moral obligation to protect and to care for and and to be thinking about. I think that is such an important idea for this dark green religion phenomenon. However, I don't think we would be sitting here talking about dark green religion were it not for the environmental movement. And the environmental movement for me begins around at least the modern one, begins around Silent Spring, Rachel Carson, Earth Day, 1970, and and has only sort of been supercharged through time. I, I guess maybe, I don't know if we want to play with that counterfactual or not, but it does seem to me that it's not just about science. It's also about, you know, a real crisis uh, uh, upon us that, that begins somewhere in the 1960s.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. It's interesting to think about Earth Day as a a ceremony or as a pageant or as a ritual. Mm. And every year, of course, it's celebrated in to varying degrees around the world. And in a certain way, Earth Day represents a moment where we step back and we consider the earth and whether we ought to have great reverence for life itself. Now, of course, a lot of the early environmental movement was motivated by alarm about Threats to human health, you know, Mm -hmm. pesticides and so forth. But certainly Rachel Carson, who wrote Silent Spring, she was a great exemplar of this kind of dark green spirituality. Her early works were what I would call naturalistic animism. She was imaginatively going into the lives of sea creatures and doing her best and really beautifully to imagine life from their perspective. You know, it's I. It, I just had a weird thought that I've never quite
0: put together. The first Earth Day is 1970, right? Yep. Um, you know, that was before the science of climate change was part of the popular conscious. That was before we understood the environmental crisis to be
1: global. I think that the bomb was yeah. uh, contradicts that just a little bit. In that, some of the anxiety that was being launched there was based on uh, The fear among activists uh, of omnicide because of the Cold War and and the proliferation of nuclear weapons technologies. It's a great call. Environmental historians talk about the great acceleration of environmental destruction that really took off since the Second World War with that dramatic increase in human numbers, doing all the things that humans do and the increasing power of all sorts of technologies. And- that has accelerated environmental degradation. It is precipitating the collapse of ecosystems in various parts of the world. And now, as you suggest, uh, beginning really, oh, about 1990 and the publication of uh, Bill McKibben's book, The End of Nature, that began to convince a wide variety of people about the threat to life as we know it, which is really an apocalyptic view from climate change. And then, of course, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and all the science. If you go back and you read those reports over the last, gosh, 30 plus years, you just see the increasing alarm by the scientists themselves who never want to be accused of alarmism. So they've always been underplaying the threat. And now they're they're doing the equivalent of what to me is like standing on the table and shouting that we must act now. And some are saying it's even too late to avoid uh, absolute calamity. So that acceleration of environmental alarm, combined with the the spread of an ecological and evolutionary worldview among large proportions of the human community, is a big part of what is giving dark green spiritualities cultural traction. The
0: Anthropocene Working Group seems to be like leaning pretty heavily towards be- beginning the Anthropocene in it somewhere in the kind of great acceleration timeframe, 1947, right. 49, I forget. Out of curiosity, do you have a take on this? I, I have so many opinions. I tend to think that we actually shouldn't adopt the Anthropocene boundary because it's a little early to say something started, a new geologic age started you know, 60 years ago. The geologist in me wants to balk at that. And, and I also want to separate it out from the politics. On the other hand, You know, I'm obviously infatuated with this term, and I kind of want it to be adopted.
1: (laughs) You know, I've been talking about it for over 10 years now. So I don't know. Do you have a take? Uh, Well, I do. First of all, and I have written about this, I'm one of those who thinks that if you're going to use the term Anthropocene, we really ought to be talking about the advent of agriculture. Mm. And of course, agriculture began about 10,000 years before the present, but agriculture really didn't begin to accelerate until about 3,000 years before the common era. Yeah. And wherever agriculture has spread, biological diversity and cultural diversity both erode. Mm. Yeah. So to me, if there's an Anthropocene transformation of life on earth, it's traceable to agriculture. Now, that said... I'm not really fond of the term Anthropocene because it just strikes me in some ways as another form of hubris, that here we are, we're one species among billions. And so now we want, on top of everything that we've done, to name the epic after us. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's like, if we're going to be more humble, try to find our way to a more humble understanding of the human place in the biosphere, I don't see the need to declare ourselves as now the the royalty of it in a certain way. And it also bothers me that some of the discussion of this, you know, when people are talking about the good Anthropocene, well, I don't see it. You know, so (laughs) some people are kind of giddy about this. Oh, now we're in charge. Really? Isn't that just another echo of those passages in the Hebrew Bible, the Christian old Testament that gives dominion over, uh, the Earth to this species, yeah. shouldn't we be getting over that kind of idea? So anyway, I'm I'm, I'm ambivalent about the term.
0: <laughs> I, I gotta say, let me just pause on that and say thank you again for making time to appear on the Generation Anthropocene podcast. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I no, well, I think you put your finger on a lot there, and you know, let's talk about this for another half sec because I do think that the great tension of the term is about power and control, and that uh, the religious dimensions of that are are enormous. That we there there is a, a scientifically valid Valid point of view that we have fundamentally altered Earth's surface geology and that there's a decent chance that'll register in the rock record for many, 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 many millions of years to come, that, that we have permanently left a mark. That we can ex- exert global influences. Traditionally, the forces that govern the fate of life on Earth, that set the boundary conditions for what can grow where and how and why, that was the domain of gods or god and now we are more and more exerting influence even if we're not exerting control that to me is the great tension of this term so there is a religious element i think to you know kind of built into this anthropocene concept for me
1: yeah that's that's interesting and i certainly understand the value of the discussion of the anthropocene yeah because we really need to understand in a very deep way our impacts on the earth's environmental systems. So an evolutionary and ecological scientific worldview challenges the cosmogonies, these stories about how the world came to be in a pretty profound way. So typically religions, traditional religions, despite their great diversity, have often been engaged in efforts to, through rituals and sacrifices, to appease or please, some deity or deities, and why? To get favorable environmental conditions, you know, so the crops will grow, yeah. or to avoid environmental harms. Now, of course, some religions are also looking for a divine rescue to go somewhere else, but nonetheless, a lot of the, the, the sacrificial nature of religions is about controlling environmental systems. Hmm. Well, if you develop a completely naturalistic view of how the universe is unfolding, and how ecosystems work, you can no longer rely on uh, divine rescue from your own behaviors if they're harmful. And so what these kinds of naturalistic dark green spiritualities do is they put the responsibility back on us quite squarely. I think that We've done quite a bit over the last few decades. We've done quite a bit of research, both qualitative, in other words, you know, field work and interview related, and quantitative, in other words, survey research and other empirical method, methods to try to better understand the relationship between religious beliefs and perceptions and environmental values and practices. Mm-hmm. And what they reveal is that the world's predominant religions, all of them, not just the Western ones, all of them have really important ideas that are common within them that devalue the world, this earthly world, in some important ways, where this world is kind of penultimate, not ultimate, right? And what's the sacred about, really? The sacred is about what is of ultimate concern to us, Mm. of ultimate value, that which is deserving of reverence, right? Well, and deals with death. deals Deals with death too, right? Well, quite right. And and one of the things about dark green religion, when I when I go through and I itemize the, the themes common in it, there's not a, a, a denial of death and a expression of of a hope in a, in going to a non earthly paradise. And it's not about this kind of eastern idea of reincarnation. And if you behave well now, you're going to come back in an even cooler form later. Yeah, it's rather that. That death is, a, while sad and tragic for those who love the departed, is also the wellspring of new life hmm. and the the recycling of the energies and the material in a body into new, new forms. That still feels Eastern-ish,
0: you know, not knowing a hell of a lot about reincarnation and how this works, only having had a handful of very very stoned conversations with people in high school. Um, <laughs> uh, it
1: still kind of feels Eastern-ish, you know what I mean? Well, here, here's the thing. Religions are malleable.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, Religions are a, a bricolage, right? If we look at Judaism, Judaism borrowed from a whole bunch of religious stuff going on in the ancient Near East and put them together in a new way. And Christianity did the same thing. Islam did the same thing. And they're all cherry picking, okay? Okay fundamentalist forms of these religions try to stick to what their understanding of the original form was. Mm -hmm. And they try not to be a bricolage beyond what they understand to be the core of the tradition. The more liberal forms of religions are more open in various ways to cherry picking, and they, they can incorporate new things. Every religion around the world, I think it's fair to say, has people who have affinity with these dark green spiritual sentiments. And many of these folks are trying to integrate them, okay? But the data seems to be that this is happening largely within the intelligentsias of these traditions. The further down the evolutionary and ecological understanding you go, the more likely you are to leave behind a lot of the metaphysical or religious truth claims that were original in the traditions.
0: If you really spend a lot of time studying the science, you're likely to jump ship eventually. It gets harder and harder to hold these two worldviews in the same brain. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you know, the, I I guess I just want to make sure I'm clear on the kind of like, is the argument, Bron, that at some point, you're gonna bump up against that wall that that the religion that you were raised in, whether indigenous, Eastern, Western, Abrahamic, whatever, it is gonna have a hard time bringing a Darwinian theory of the world, an, an evolutionary theory of the world, into it. I mean, there's that, there's possibilities, but is there
1: ultimately limits? I guess I don't know if that's a good question or not. But it's yeah, a great question. Okay, it's it's a deep epistemological question, a question about how do you know what you know? Yeah, and what do you do? when there are competing understandings of the world right and i had this experience myself i was uh, in the in my teens in this evangelical christian tradition mm. and over time i began to encounter these scientific understandings and as is typical the people in that evangelical tradition were trying to do therapy on me as i to challenge my increasing interest in the scientific understandings and narratives well, for me, it didn't work. I yeah. consider myself an empiricist. I want to follow the evidence wherever it leads. In fact, Jesus said, it's the truth that will set you free. So that seems to me a license to follow the evidence wherever it goes.
0: Look at you being a brick but- a
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and this brings us back to this. Uh, people who have a religious background, who encounter these scientific stories, they've got to figure out what to do with them. Yeah, And a lot of times they will try to, to fuse them. And some succeed at that and some don't. People are meaning-seeking creatures, right? Yeah. We're trying to figure out what the hell's going on. <laughs> who are we? What is this place about? To whom and to what do we belong, if anything? I didn't into it, yeah. And so for those who are empirically oriented, as the great environmental historian Donald Worster and others have argued, there's no place to go but to nature. And how do you go to nature if you are scientifically inclined is, well, I would say through the senses, which include our direct visceral personal experience of the world, as well as the ways we enhance our senses through scientific methodologies. And I feel the same way about the metaphysical truth claims of the world's religious traditions. It's not that there's not tremendous wisdom and insight within them that we can learn from. But in terms of, you know, The deepest understandings of how the universe came to be and how diversity emerged here on planet Earth, I find them inadequate. Yeah. And and, and that's what people who are calling themselves religious naturalists are doing. Their understanding of the biosphere and biocomplexity and the universe informed by the sciences leads them to a sense of love and reverence for the Earth. So, all right, I want to I ask a follow-up question to this
0: science as religion idea, because it seems to me that this is the main thing dark green religion has going for it. And we live in an age where I sometimes think, like, are we just trying to see just how much science denialism we can get away with? Sometimes I feel like there's this cultural tendency to create accommodation space for fantastic non-scientific beliefs. And I just wonder how much of that we can get away with. And I guess that's my way of sort of asking the question of where is this all going in terms of dark green religion? I mean, not to ask you to predict the future, but if you were to uh, sort of say, this is where I see things heading, how would you answer that question?
1: Well, scientifically, we know that our species and the systems we depend on are in for a very hard ride near term, at least if we value human life and biological diversity. Yeah. Um, Way back in 1972, a group of precocious MIT scientists published the Limits to Growth Report, and they predicted that by the middle of this century, there would be widespread collapse of ecological and social systems if we did not dramatically downsize our human numbers and our consumptive patterns and subsequent research since 1972 that has tracked the human impact on the planet has shown how unbelievably these early environmental modelers, computer modelers, were how incredibly accurate they have been. I think there it's inevitable that there will be a significant decline in human numbers and of other species within the next couple hundred years, and just as the accelerating obvious nature of this is increasing environmental alarm and action, and I would argue dark green kinds of uh, value systems and spiritualities, it could well be that the shock of what's coming will accelerate even further these kinds of dark green spiritualities, perceptions, and politics. Demographers typically point out, the, mo- the most rapidly growing parts of the human population are those in religiously conservative sectors of the world because they have high fertility rates. Mm-hmm. So there's, in my judgment, there's a kind of battle going on, a worldview battle going on globally between those who have uh, a deep reverence for the earth and those who are looking for some kind of uh, divine rescue from it, to put it uh, in kind of a very simple, stark terms. Yeah. And, you know, is it possible to imagine perhaps after more social disruption, forcing dramatic rethinking and social change, of the emergence of new forms of politics and governance that take the sacredness of the earth and a reverence for environmental systems seriously. Well, you, you might say, well, isn't this just a fantasy, right? <laughs> and, and maybe it is. However, about 10 years ago, Bolivia and Ecuador either created new constitutions or, or Dramatic revisions of them, where they proclaimed that nature has rights, and the government and civil society has a responsibility to enforce the rights of nature. Those are dark green spiritual sentiments now in constitutional structures in law. Yeah, right. And there's other examples where, and and sometimes it's indigenous traditions and societies and activists who are helping to promote this. But in uh, New Zealand and India. Certain mountains and rivers are being declared as persons, Hmm. which is a kind of animistic, dark green animistic perception, right? So there are these absolutely stunning trends emerging. And when I get really depressed, I think about how with the communicative infrastructure available on planet Earth now, where ideas can spread so rapidly, at least in non-authoritarian cultures where they're censored. Yeah. It's possible for some of these dramatic transformations of understanding of the human place in the world and responsibilities to it. It's possible for those to spread even more rapidly than they have in the past.
0: Well, you certainly set the stage for a grand battle. You know, the part that I guess has me really cynical is it's actually about this kinship ethics piece that I feel like – Social animals were so sensitive to in-group, out-group dynamics, and that even having a shared humanity of all people, like to then extend that into other forms of life feels like an unrealistic ask. And I'm trying to think like, I know I want to raise kids. And connect with people who are engaged in the exercise of trying to develop a sort of kinship ethics and affinity for you know different kinds of life forms. But man, we have a hard enough time doing that with other people. You know, (laughs) I guess, and I don't mean to be cynical about it, but I feel like if that's the task in front of us here, you know, is is that it's that kind of worldview that's necessary if we want to try and develop social systems that can address the environmental crisis. Cause at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. I mean, it is not to get too fatalistic a little bit, the fate of the world and certainly the fate of humanity on the world.
1: So, well, I wouldn't say that a kind of global embrace of kinship ethics is a prerequisite to the kinds of, you know, social and political transformations that are necessary. Those who argue for these ecocentric value systems that, have intrinsic value in nature. Yeah. They accurately point out that you need that kind of ethic to prioritize a deep pro-biodiversity ethic in which all species matter and deserve to be protected. But self-interest is a powerful motivating force. Goddamn right. And Right? So it's possible for people who have these deep ecological sentiments, these dark green sentiments, and for people who are um, more concerned, to put it bluntly, just about people, to come together in common cause to protect the ecosystems upon which human beings depend. And those with an ecological worldview can make very strong, prudential arguments that anthropocentric people should care about the whole environmental system and all the species within it, because as Aldo Leopold evocatively put it, the first precaution of intelligent tinkering is to save all the parts. (laughs) And so if we don't know what medicine is going to come from some species that we drive to extinction, that might just save our butts down the road, right? Right. So there's prudential arguments to to be made for a robust biodiversity ethic that reverences all life, even if one at a kind of basic ethical level, thinks that human beings are morally and sp- spiritually superior to other beings and the only creatures that really matter.
0: So in other words, there's a lot of opportunities to find common
1: ground. Well, that's right. That's right. And and if the people with dark green spiritual sentiments are wise, they'll apply their ethic of humility to the way in which they express themselves politically.
0: Now, in, in, in a funny way, this to me circles back to the question of uh, sort of radical, you know, environmentalism tactics. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: civil disobedience done in a kind of the, the way that Gandhi and King talked about it as an expression of moral conscience, trying to educate the wider public about the issue that is at stake and why it matters, and doing it in a civil way is more likely to move people in your direction than acts of sabotage. And I think the data is, and the history is really clear about that.
0: Bron, the, the problem with you is I could talk with you all goddamn day. Uh, I <laughs> lo- I've really Likewise. gotten uh, a ton of this out of this conversation. Is there anything that, I mean, you know, there's so many, much more we could say. Um, recognizing that we can't talk forever, is there anything else you want to add to this conversation? Anything I haven't touched on that you felt feel like is important to contribute? I feel like we've given people a lot here.
1: Well, you know what occurs to me is that when I wrote the book, I mean, it was it, the book is about as optimistic as I can be, <laughs> yeah, because it looks at the positive trends. It also looks at you know it, it's in the context of very negative trends, yeah. But I think it. I think there's actually some hopeful signals in the book. Yeah. So I knew when I wrote it, I thought when I wrote it, that there would be some folks who would feel less alone and maybe a little more hopeful when reading it. And the reaction to the book has sort of suggested that that, that, that is the case. People writing to me personally, the interest in translating it into other languages because they because people who read it, who are multilingual, think this would be helpful to people in their regions with their languages who, who also don't know that this stuff has as much cultural currency around the world as I'm arguing that it does.
0: Mm.
1: Well, Braun Taylor,
0: this has been a delight. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Congratulations on the work, and I'm just really glad we got a chance to sit down and talk.
1: Well, the pleasure has been mine to be with you, Michael, and your uh, audience.
0: Thanks so much again to Bron Taylor for that conversation. Thanks also to Brandon Burke for helping produce this episode and Maya Fawaz for editorial assistance. I'm Michael Osborne. Thanks for listening. See you next time.